Well, for those of you who were here at the beginning of the service, which I know was about five of you, um, Eric Haskins shared the title of our message. The title of our message today uh, is A Seat at the Table. A seat at the table. And, and what I love about that title and what we're talking about today, what we're thinking about today is it immediately has brought to mind for me some of those tables in my life that have been especially meaningful. You know what I mean? My, my husband and I, um, Eric, we uh, have been married uh, 25 years. We just celebrated our, our 25th wedding anniversary this last fall. And one of the, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> One of the first big purchases that we made as a married couple uh, was to buy a, a kitchen table. And we were living in Ohio at the time, and so we drove three and a half hours to an Amish farm <laughs> to get this custom-made table. And, and this table to this day, I mean, it looks brand new. This thing is gonna outlive all of us. I, I have scars on my shins from running into it. It is so well-made and so well-built. But the thing that I love the most about this table is it's a reminder to me and maybe a reminder to to you this morning that ordinary things happen around our tables. Very ordinary things can happen around our tables, but sometimes those very ordinary things are some of the most meaningful and significant things that make us who we are. I know for us, we, we, as my husband says, has made a rule to honor the kitchen table. He has been known to pound his fists on the table and say, we will honor the table. And so we don't allow screens at our table. So the TVs don't go on. There's no phones at the table. If you are a guest in our home and you bring a phone to the table, you will be scolded by a member of my household because there are no phones at the table. And we do that because we know that sometimes when the kids come home after a day at school or, or something that's happening in their life, or Eric and I come home after a long day of work, the kitchen table becomes the place that we just sit down together. And we share the ups and downs of our days, the joys, the frustrations, sometimes that really weird thing that happened that you just can't wait to share with someone else. It happens around the kitchen table and it happens in a very ordinary way, but what's so beautiful about those ordinary moments that we share around the kitchen table is they are cumulative. They build up over time, and over time as we share our stories around the kitchen table, as we are present to one another, as we put away distractions, what we learn is that we can come to the kitchen table, we can come to that table exactly as we are, to be accepted exactly as we are, for better or for worse, that we always, always have a seat at the table. There are tables that are ordinary, that are so meaningful. And other times we gather around tables for something that is, doesn't feel ordinary. We gather around tables for celebrations, for weddings and anniversaries and birthday celebrations. We gather around tables to celebrate those moments in our lives that are so significant, that are so memorable, that we need to mark it in the sand and we need to say, we need to mark this moment and celebrate together. Uh, we had the opportunity just over the holidays, Eric and I and, and the kids, um, to have one of those moments with my family. Every, every day, the day, every year, the day after Christmas, we head out to Pennsylvania and we do something that's called Second Christmas, which uh, this year was 54 of my relatives. <laughs> 
that gathered together. We needed a lot of tables, but, but we were able to celebrate actually one night. The most meaningful thing that happened is we were able to celebrate. My parents both turned 80 this fall and they're celebrating this week their 60th wedding anniversary. And so my siblings and I and our spouses, we gathered around the table and we shared stories. We shared stories of how each person came into the family. We listened to stories from my mom and dad about how they started dating and about their early married life. And there were things that some of us, we, we had never heard before. And we sat and we honored the table and we honored one another at the table because we know that something meaningful happens when we gather around our tables. As we enter our scripture passages this morning, we are going to see a very different picture. The stories of two men who, unlike the stories I just told, did not have a table to go to. They both physically and metaphorically did not literally have a seat at the table. There was no meaningful connection for them until until one day, Jesus enters their world. And he turns it upside down and he changes everything about their life and what it means to have a seat at the table. The first story comes from John chapter five. If you wanna open your Bibles or an app on your phone, the words will also be on the screen. But we are going to start with John chapter five, starting in verse one. It says this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one who was there and had been here, an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him this question that we hear in the Gospels. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured he picked up his mat and he walked. This is the word of the Lord, my friends. Thanks be to God. Now, I, I want us to take a minute because as, as people who follow Jesus, as people of the word, sometimes it's really helpful. Even stories that we've heard for a long time, it's helpful to take a minute and to imagine ourselves in the story, to really set the scene for what's going on so we can internalize them. And when we go home and are having lunch today, we actually remember what we heard and we can talk about the stories that are happening in scripture. And so up to this point in the Gospel of John, at least as John tells the story, Jesus had been spending some time in and around Galilee. He had been traveling around and some significant things had already happened. He had turned um, water into wine at the wedding. He had had that unbelievable transformational encounter with the woman at the well that changed her life. He had healed the Roman centurion's son, 
just by speaking healing over him. There were things happening. There were significant things happening around the tables where Jesus visited. And so now he's moving towards Jerusalem and he goes through an area leading into the city known as the Sheep Gate. And it was known as the Sheep Gate because this is the place they would herd sheep through into the city to go to the temple to be sacrificed. It was a very well-known, very well-populated area. And, And what we learn about this area is there is a pool there. And there's a pool there, and it's called Bethesda. And Bethesda is made up of two words. The first is Baeth, meaning house. And the second is the word hesed. Some of you may recognize this if you've done a little Bible study in the past. Hesed, that means God's loving kindness. And so Bethesda literally means the house of God's loving kindness. Isn't that a beautiful term for us to learn? And and it's even more beautiful when we understand what happens in this story around this pool. Now, the pool of Bethesda had become well-known excuse me, because there was a legend surrounding the pool. There was a legend that an angel of the Lord would descend into the waters. And the angel of the Lord would descend into the waters and then stir the waters. And when that happened, the water, something in the water would bubble up. And if you were one of those lame or crippled people, you would try to be the first one to that place that bubbled up because you, if you were the first one there, you would be healed. And so it was a very popular place for people, the sick, the lame, to gather and to try to get into the water first. Now, I want us to imagine this for a minute. Uh, I want to imagine what would happen here in this room. If, imagine you're not feeling very well. <laughs> and imagine I said, okay, all, all of you, it, um, I'm gonna count to 10. And on the count of 10, I'm gonna take a towel and I'm gonna throw it out into the middle of the room. And when I throw that towel onto the middle of the room, the first person that gets to the towel, you get the magic healing pill. You're the one that's gonna get cured from this terrible stomach flu that's been happening around the suburbs if you get to the towel first. Now, imagine what would happen if I did that. It counted to 10, go, get to the towel. Well, first of all, it would create a huge amount of chaos. Can you imagine? I know some of you are competitive. I, I know you. I, I, know, I know who you are. You'd be diving over top of each other, even if you didn't, weren't sick to get to that towel, just to say that you won. I'm one of those people, so I know, I know. Thank you, friend. Um, my friends are shaking their head, I know. So it would create total chaos. But imagine now, if you weren't just not only not feeling well, imagine if you had some kind of physical ailment. Imagine you had a broken leg. Imagine you were in a wheelchair. Imagine that you uh, just had back surgery and we did the same thing. Do you think your chances of ever beating anyone to that towel would go up or would they go down? They would go down, right? The chances of you making it first to the towel are probably not very likely. And so when we think about that, when we think about that, what we need to understand is this man who had been lying next to the pool in Bethesda is in a wheelchair. No, he's not in a wheelchair. They didn't have wheelchairs then, he's paraplegic. He didn't have a wheelchair to get around in and so his only way that he could get to the pool is to drag himself by his arms. Do you think maybe that after 38 years, maybe that is why he never made it to the place where the pool bubbles up? 
Now, if you were here today, you maybe, and you had that ailment, maybe you would ask a friend to help you. Maybe you would help, ask someone to try to help you get to the middle of the pool. And, and that is something that also happened in ancient times. If, if they couldn't get to the middle of the pool, they would ask a friend or maybe their servant to help them. But we see in this story that this, this man has no one. He has no one to help him. And so Jesus enters Bethesda. He enters Bethesda, and we don't really understand why, but he ignores everyone else, and he narrows in on just this one man, this man whose name we don't even know. And I imagine that Jesus maybe stooped to the ground, and he looks him in the eye, and he asks him a very simple yet very profound question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to take a seat at this table that I've laid out for you. Now, I want us to be careful here because I think there is both a caution and a challenge in Jesus' question. The caution comes to us because I imagine, I know if I have done this, maybe some of you have done this too, when I read this question, when I read this test, I, I presume some things upon Jesus' word. I presume a sense of judgment in this question. I add a little shade. <laughs> I have it drip with sarcasm. Come on, man. Do you really want to get well? Do you actually want a seat at the table? Like after 38 years, honestly, not just one person in your life could help you get into the pool. I've already painted a little bit of this picture of what life would have been like for this man as a paraplegic at this time, but not only would he have been physically limited, he would have been socially isolated as well. His condition wouldn't have allowed him to get a job, to um, make a living for them, himself. He would have been the poorest of the poor. He would have been lying literally in his own filth on this mat. For 38 years, imagine the smell. This is a man that no one wanted at their table, and yet Jesus and his kindness and his goodness in this place, this house of God's loving kindness, he approaches the man and he asks this question. And the caution for us here, I think, is though we need to check our assumptions. We need to check our assumptions about people whose stories maybe we don't understand. It's so easy for us to dehumanize this man at the pool because it's easy in our humanity to succumb to the temptation to judge others when we actually know nothing about their stories. I'm wondering for us today, if we, instead of succumbing to the temptation to do that, what if we instead accepted a challenge to invite these people whose stories we don't understand, it's maybe even people in this room, people we're a relationship with, and, and instead of doing what, um, instead of being judgmental, we do what my favorite character, biblical character Ted Lasso does. You guys know it? He says, be curious, not judgmental. We invite people to sit at our tables and we ask them questions in the ordinary and in the meaningful and we get to know their stories. And in doing so, in doing so, we dunk people in the healing pool of God's loving kindness because sometimes an invitation to the table is the only thing 
the only thing that will make someone else well. That's our caution. I think the challenge in this question for each and every one of us that I don't want us to miss, do you wanna get well? That question in and of itself should just make us stop. We should just pause actually regularly and consistently. We should ask ourselves and take inventory of our lives and our souls and say, golly, what are the areas in my life where I'm feeling stuck? What are the areas in my life where I actually could do something to get well, where I actually could move to the healing water that bubbles up before me, but I'm kind of like Paul, I do the things that I'm not supposed to do and the things I'm not supposed to do are the things that I really like to do, and so I have this war going on within me, but then year after year, day after day, month after month, we find ourselves stuck, stuck in certain patterns of behavior, the things that we consume, we're stuck, we know they're not good for us, and yet we just keep consuming them in our mind, in our hearts, in our, in our bodies, in our soul, and then they start to fracture the relationships around us. We hold grudges, we hold on to shame in our own lives, and, and instead of moving towards the healing water, we actually hold on to the very things that keep us from being well. We push away the very people who repeatedly invite us over and over and over again to the table. My friends, today, that is a challenge that we each need to consider and think about, those spaces in your life where you are feeling stuck, that you have the power to do something about, take a look and say, gosh, Jesus, help me get well. Our other story today comes from Mark chapter two. Now the story that we just talked about in the Gospel of John, it's the story that Jesus is having this very intimate encounter, this one conversation with one human being, with one individual. But when we, when we contrast that with what happens in the story of Mark chapter two, we see that a healing occurs that involves an entire community of people. Let's look at what the text says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to see Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat that the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, sons, your sins are forgiven. And then there is some controversy that we'll come back to that happens between Jesus and some of the religious leaders who are sitting in the room. But then Jesus goes on as he addresses the man, and he says, so he said to the man, I tell you, this is the healing moment, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and he walked out in full view of all of them. No one was confused about what just happened. And this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never, we have never seen anything like this. 
Now again, let's set the scene for a minute. At this point in Mark's gospel, word had gotten out about Jesus' reputation as a teacher, as a healer, as a miracle worker, and people were in awe of him everywhere he went. And so his popularity had grown to such a point that he couldn't conceal himself for even just a couple days. It was like paparazzi all the time. It was like Harry Styles, right? Everywhere, in and out, there were just crowds of people all around him. And we see that in, 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 this, uh, in Mark's gospel, that in this home that is not identified in the text, but is most likely the home of Peter and Andrew, that there is a crowd gathered so big, so big that the house is just filled with people. And they're surrounding the perimeter of the house and they're in the doorways so people can't even get in. And Jesus is teaching and he's preaching and he's talking about the kingdom of God and all of a sudden he's interrupted. He's interrupted by something falling from the roof, dried pieces of mud and sticks and branches from the thatched roof. And then all of a sudden there is a man on a mat being lowered down before him and placed at his feet. And unlike the man in the first story, this man whose name we actually also don't know, he's not alone. He actually has some friends who are stepped, step in and are willing to help friends who are waiting on the roof as they lower their friend down and they're waiting with hope and anticipation and longing and faith because they believe that this Jesus, this miracle worker can actually do what they, they think he can do to their friend. I love this story of these four friends. I love this story because it reminds us of sometimes what it takes, what we need to do on behalf of someone else if we want them to come to the table. These friends, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to set aside their own time, their own schedule, their own resources, perhaps. They were willing to band together, to communicate together, to make a plan on behalf of their friend and then stand in the gap in a way that their friend could literally not stand for himself. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to make fools of themselves. They were willing to embarrass themselves. They were willing to risk their reputation. Imagine what other people would have thought as they're carrying this man, this paralytic man on a mat through the town and when they get to the house and they can't get in and maybe they're rude and maybe they're aggressive and maybe they're abrasive trying to get their way into see Jesus and when they can't and they go to the roof and they literally start digging digging the roof and making everything fall. Imagine the mess they would have created in the house where Jesus was that would have fallen on the hairs and the shoulders of the people who were watching. They were willing to risk their reputation, to make fools of themselves, to make a complete mess of other people's lives because they didn't care what other people thought of him, them. They wanted to put someone else's needs, their friend's needs ahead of their own. And then they believed. They believed on behalf of their friend. Does anyone here have a friend? Have you ever been in a situation where you are so down? You are so hurting. Maybe you are so lonely. 
you just can't believe for yourself. You want to believe Jesus is going to fix it. You want to believe that Jesus is going to heal you. You want to believe that Jesus has forgiven you, but you just can't muster up the faith to do it on your own. These friends believed on behalf of their friend in a way that their friend could not do for himself. Does anyone have four friends like that? Anybody want four friends like that? You know, I was reminded when Eric and I first moved here to Chicago, we moved here 17 years ago now, which is hard for me to believe. My kids were three and two years old. And when we moved here, we didn't know a single soul. Not one single person. And, and because my kids were so little and I was a stay-at-home mom, we didn't have a school community where we could connect with people. And so it was really hard for me to make friends. I spent a whole year being pretty lonely, and I swear, every time someone invited us to go somewhere, someone puked. Like, our family always got the stomach flow. And so, like, it, just, it was just a really rough first year. And I remember coming to church here, and I would look around at all these beautiful people, and I would think, everybody's table is full. No one has room for me. And I thank God that I did not believe that lie because the people here, the people of this community, my friends, my relationships, they went out of their way. They, they dug the hole in the roof to make friends, to make space for me at their tables. And I am a different person today because of it. And you know what, when we do that, when we create space at our tables, I'm not, it's not only me who's a different person today, it's not only my husband who's a different person today, my children are different people today because of the community that we have built here. I, I, my kids are now in college, which is hard for me to believe, and uh, they've been home over the last couple weeks. Sadie just went back to school uh, last week, and Clay, I'm actually, we're driving to Memphis today to get him um, back to school, but I have loved as a parent to sit back and watch them not only connect with their peers, <laughs> but to connect with adult mentors, to connect with people who have become part of our circles and our relationships. My son Clay uh, had a breakfast with one of the camp counselors who went to Camp Cal, the middle school camp, um, last summer. He's become good friends with him, except uh, his name is Mark, and Mark is in his 70s. And Clay thinks he's the best human being on the face of the earth, and, and Mark just made time time to invite Clay to the table and to build into his life. And then Clay left that breakfast and he actually went and had lunch with Donye, who is our drummer in our worship band. Donye is another person who has created space around his table for my son and has changed who he is because of his investment in his life. My friends, when we create space around the tables for people, when we invite them into God's loving kindness, we do something for them that they cannot do for themselves and people start to become well. You know, as I look at the story of these two men in scriptures, I think there's two invitations for us that come out of it. The first invitation is to be the one who risks. Sometimes we are the ones who are feeling like maybe we don't have a seat at the table. We feel like everybody else's tables are full, but we're afraid. We're afraid to risk a little bit about who we are. We're afraid when people ask us how we're doing to say more than just fine. 
We're afraid to peel back the layers and let let them see who we really are. But you know what? When we don't take the risk, when we don't take the risk to get well and to trust other people with who we are, we never can experience the fullness of God's unending grace. God created us to be in that relationship with one another. Sometimes we need to be the ones who are willing to take the risk. Other times we need to be the ones who are willing to be the ones who carry. We need to be the ones who check our assumptions, who put our agendas aside, who put our needs aside, who don't care about our reputation, and we need to actually create space for someone else and invite them to the table, we need to pick up their mat, we need to carry them, we need to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. My friends, who is that person in your life that you have been walking by for 38 days, or 38 months, or 38 years, because they're just too messy? You just think maybe they're just not someone you wanna get involved with, but you need to understand their story. Who is that person for you that you can invite to your table and just douse them in the pool of God's forgiveness and grace? Friends, those are two invitations we can wrestle with today, but the last thing I wanna say is, do you know what our, our invitation number is? Do you know what our invitation number is? to be the one who heals. (laughs) Our invitation is never to be the one who heals because only God, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can bring the healing. When um, several years ago, I got invited to speak at a retreat up in Wisconsin, and I was so excited. I worked so hard on my content. I was so sure it was like the most anointed thing that anyone had put together, that anyone was gonna say, and the history of the world. And so I traveled up to this women's retreat. It was for uh, another church. And I traveled, and, and Friday night, I was sitting around the table with three women. And it was a mom and two daughters. They were older, so a a mom and two daughters. And I was just starting to get to learn their story a little bit. And um, I found out that they actually didn't know anybody else there at the retreat. They weren't part of the church. They had found out about the retreat because it was on a bulletin board somewhere at a coffee shop or something like that. And they just decided to come. And as I talked to them, I pressed into their story a little bit more and I found out that um, one of the the girls, one of the moms, had um, recently lost her seven-year-old daughter. And that was the reason they wanted to come. It was grandma, mom, and niece. And they decided to come just to have some community to sit around a table together. And so as I heard their story, I, I said to them at the end of dinner that night, I said, you know what? I want you to feel the freedom to take whatever space you need this weekend. Take whatever space you need, do whatever you need to do to make this weekend exactly what you need it to be. And they thanked me and we went on their way, our way. And I went to bed that night and I tossed and turned all night long because at the time my daughter, Sadie, was about the same, same age. And I thought, I just can't imagine her pain. And so I prayed for God all night. I tossed and turned, I wrestled, I prayed for God. I said, when, we, when these women come back on Saturday morning, Lord, use me. <laughs> Use me to be an instrument of your grace. Use me to say the exact right thing that they need to hear. Use me to help heal their story. 
And Saturday morning, I was prepping for my talk, and they, they came up to me, and they said, gosh, we just want to thank you so much for what you said. Thank you for giving us permission to um, take the space we needed. We're, we're actually going to skip the sessions and um, go shopping today. We just need some time together. <laughs> I was like, I didn't actually mean it. <laughs> it's just something Christians say, right? I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed. I thought, God, oh gosh. I hear you were putting me in this place, you were gonna use me and now I've lost my opportunity. And so, so I, I had hope that they would come back and so I continued to pray and pray and I, I didn't really see them the rest of that day but there was one more session on Sunday morning and I thought, okay, the same thing. I prayed all night and I thought, Sunday morning, they're gonna come back and I got this message, it's all about Jesus and, and you know, the gospel and healing and forgiveness and, and we got this. And, and Sunday morning, the same thing happens. They come up to me before the session. They said, you know what? We want to thank you for just being so nice. We're, we're going to actually just take off. And I remember driving home that day from that retreat and the four-hour trip back to Chicago from where I was in Wisconsin. And I just remember feeling utterly devastated. I felt so defeated. I felt like I had missed my opportunity. God, what were you, what were you thinking they were, they were here, you gave me this talk. It was, it was my moment. And I just, I remember so distinctly God just whispering in my ear as I drove back that day, Sue Ann, you are not her savior. You are not the one who heals. I alone am the one who heals. And I know some of you are here today and you're in that space where you're feeling stuck and you're trying all kinds of different things and you're, you're trying to get healing on your own and you need to hear that word. God alone is the one that heals. And there's others of you here today that you've been believing on behalf of someone else. You have been praying, you have been crying out to God to, to use you to heal them in their life. You keep inviting them to the table and they keep resisting you. And my word of encouragement to you today is keep lowering them on the mat at the feet of Jesus and trust, trust that he alone is the one who heals. Do you wanna know the irony of this whole sermon today? Do you wanna know the twist at the end of the story is, is neither of these stories in the gospels are actually about the men who are healed. I mean, they are. We've spent a lot of time talking about them, but ultimately, that's not what these stories are about. These stories are ultimately about one thing and one thing only, and that is the person of Jesus Christ and the way that he has come to heal and restore us from the inside out. In John, Jesus could have chosen to help the man by dunking him in the water. Jesus could have been the person that picked him up and when the water bubbled, dunked him in that pool. But you know what Jesus does instead? He ignores the water. <laughs> he ignores it because he doesn't need it. He is not just in the house of God's loving kindness, he is the house of God's loving kindness. And so he tells the paralyzed man to get up and walk to leave his life behind, but he doesn't just do it to tell him to leave his life behind. He tells him to pick up his mat and walk because this one small detail that John adds in the story, that when Jesus healed this man, it was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. 
There were 39 things you weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath that were forbidden. They were breaking the law, and one of them would have been picking up your mat and carrying them from one place to the next. And Jesus says, you know what? You pick up your mat and you go, and you show everybody else here that I am not about rules, I am not about law, but I am about grace. And I have come so that everyone may have a seat at the table. And then in Mark, when Jesus heals the man, he says, the first thing he says, it's so weird, your sins are forgiven. It's like if you go to the doctor and you have a broken leg and you ask them to give you something and they ask you how your soul is doing. And it's like, you know what, that's not what I'm here for right now. But the first thing that Jesus says is your sins are forgiven. And then there's argument breaks out in the room and the scribes in the room, he says, "Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, oh, guess what? I'm God alone. I can heal your sins because I've come to restore the lives of all of God's children from the inside out. And so my friend, pick up your mat and walk. My friends, this morning, it's a good reminder for us as we prepare to come to the communion table that our stories, no matter what has happened in them, no matter how high or low, no matter what tables we have sat around in our lives, our stories are ultimately not about us. Our stories are about and because of the God who heals. They're about God. But he does ask us to pick up his mat, our mats. He does ask us to pick up our mats and to leave our way, our old way of life behind, not so that we can walk to the table, not so that we can limp to the table, but so that we can run to the table that is in the house of God's loving kindness. And he can heal our sins from the inside out and he can make us well because my friends, it is the only thing, mark my words, it is the only thing in this life that ever will. Friends, we come to the table this morning because of all the tables in our lives that we may have sat around or will sit around. This, this is the most extraordinary, significant, meaningful table we will ever come to. And we're gonna come today. Will you take a minute and pray with me? Father God, You are the healer of our souls. Lord, we may try so many different things, so many ways to get to the table, Lord, but at the end of the day, you are the one who calls us. You are the one who invites us. You are the one, Lord, who cleans us from the inside out and heals us and makes us new and gives us new life because of your work. Because of your work on the cross, Lord, we can come just as we are to this table. We thank you. Lord, we give you praise for that today. Lord, and we ask for your grace to be with us, for your forgiveness to shower over us as we come. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.